All right, welcome back to the Security Conversations podcast. My guest is one that I'm ex- excited about, uh, Dino Daisovi, uh, co-founder and CTO of Capsulate in New York. Uh, you guys are doing uh, uh, security around Linux containers. Can you just briefly uh, uh, explain what Capsulate is, what exactly you do, you know, who's your target customer? Sure. So we're building um, what we call an attack disruption platform and for modern environments. So this is anything that is in the cloud or on-premises centered around Linux servers. So not necessarily limited to containers, but we also protect uh, environments that are using legacy workloads, but also on Linux servers. And we call it attack disruption because automated response is kind of built into the fabric of it. So this is a security monitoring with security monitoring product with automated response capabilities. And this is to drive a more scalable workflow to protecting production environments. How is it different from what uh, all the old traditional anti-malware vendors are doing around uh, Linux servers and, and doing detection and protection for Linux servers? Sure. So what we add is um, we, it, we don't block things in line of execution. We respond after the fact, which is actually a lot safer for production environments because you don't have a, a possibility of causing that kind of downtime when your hooks stop working and everything starts breaking. And we also look at the distributed environment aspects, not just on a single host. So our system is designed to analyze uh, telemetry across hosts so that we protect the entire environment rather than just a what you might think of as a host intrusion prevention system or anti-malware. And one other differentiation behind traditional approaches to anti-malware is we're not looking for malicious binaries because in Unix environments, you attack with what's already there, not bringing your own binaries because those binaries can be signatureable and often you don't have to. You have Python, you have all the tools there. So if anything, you bring a script rather than a, uh, a more signatureable artifact. So you, you just to clarify, you're not doing post, uh, pros, po, are you doing post breach detection? Are you relying on a CISO to uh, uh, absorb the risk of not protecting but doing this detection post incident? No, we we are responding in real time. You're responding in real time, okay. And I'm, yes, I'm sure yes. there's like all kinds of machine learning components and. Yeah, we have a we have a, a deep bench of both security researchers and machine learning uh, data scientists as well. And your target customer? And target customer. Target customers are uh, large, you know, production environments that are centered around Linux. So, um, people who are already have a significant footprint with Linux-based servers on premises are in our key demographic, as well as anyone moving to the cloud because the cloud runs Linux. Very good. So how much sleep or how much of the actual snow in New York did you actually get over the last week? Because I noticed <laughs> you guys have been busy building out uh, detections for Meltdown and Spectra. And I wanted to, you know, I wanted to get you on to help me dig into exactly what this means. Uh, how, to, on a scale of 1 to 10, how bad is this? Um, on a scale of 1 to 10, I would put it at a, well, it, it really depends on, your environment. So for most people, I put it at a six to seven. Or your threat model um, as well, right? Yeah. Well, so actually, uh, it's most critical for areas, environments where you have multi-tenancy. So the area, the environments that at most risk were cloud providers because they have 
multiple customers with code execution, you know, as basic feature on the same hardware. And so that is where the most uh, risk is. The second most risk to these vulnerabilities are where they're exploitable from the web browser. And so there are already mitigations being developed in Chrome and, and Firefox, Firefox as well to, uh, to reduce this risk. Um, below that, it really comes down to an organization's um, how much separation they want between jobs on their hardware or applications on the same servers. So some, some environments that um, require personal machine-based isolation between apps on the same hardware would probably also see these vulnerabilities as a risk because they want to have strong isolation between those uh, between those workloads. And some of these vulnerabilities actually compromise that. So you can get a VM escape and you can actually have cross VM attacks. Um, for some environments that um, have less isolation requirements and they'll run different workloads separated just by containers or sometimes even less on the same servers, it's it may not be as much of an issue. Do you think we fully comprehend the significance of this, though? Because I, 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 it, it seems like every every day I'm learning something a little new, something newer. The, the performance hits, some of the cost attached to people in the cloud. Uh, right. I think we don't fully understand the impact of these microarchitecture bugs yet. Um, one of the things that I think was really notable about Rowhammer um, a couple of years ago mm-hmm. was that it really brought on this sort of era of understanding of these microarchitecture microarchitecture and hardware level issues and opened up the door to memory corruption facilitated by hardware hardware issues and i see these vulnerabilities sort of being in that same family and so there's these are surely not the last i think they're very interesting they're you know pretty fascinating vulnerabilities and all the researchers involved did some phenomenal work um, getting it to work. I know a number of people were thinking in this direction, but we're never never able to go that last bit to really prove it out. Um, and all the researchers that did, um, what you know, do you I, make, I think is... What do you make of four different groups finding the same thing all around the same time? There's just something funky. Um, There's something funky, but, well, so, some people have called it uh, something in the air, but... Um, you know, if you look you, back... You have to imagine guys have been thinking about this, like you just mentioned. They've, they've been thinking about this notion of uh, speculative, um, the ability to read stuff that you can speculate. Uh, and, and I don't want us to get too deep in the weeds on the, on the vulnerability because by now, if you're listening to this podcast, you've probably read about it before, especially my audience. Um, sure, exactly. But, but, but researchers don't exist in a vacuum. So, for instance, all the research groups that discovered these vulnerabilities, and myself included, we all discussed it with Anders, Anders Falk. So, you know, there's, um, he had been researching this, uh, I think longest of anyone that I knew, mm-hmm. and, um, had, you know, was digging in and people start thinking about it and everyone, I think, it's a common thread among um, a lot of the research. And um, so... But it's not normal. It's not normal for everyone to come out at the same time with more or less the same findings. Project Zero uh, being a little different, but it's uh, it brings up the whole discussion about bug collision, vulnerability collision, um, and it raises like it raises the hair on your neck that uh, three-letter agencies uh, might have previously discovered it and used it privately. 
there may have been attacks in the wild that we'll probably never know about because it's not something easily easy to track and pinpoint. Uh, does does that happen to you in your in 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 your in your world in your security world? This kind of nervousness that oh, why why are we assuming that just this group of guys found this? Well, I mean, I've been in the security industry long enough to have you know chronic paranoia at this stage. It's just <laughs> right. natural from working in this industry because you know people that have serious vulnerabilities and they're working on them, and um, it's and you know how many vulnerabilities are in everything. So you did, but you don't without good security monitoring, you don't have a good indication of the actual act, attack activity that is occurring. And so as we get more, I think, mature as an industry, what we learn is that, um, you know, with good visibility and identifying just anomalous activity or other sort of indicators of an attack that aren't connected to a specific vulnerability, you gain a couple things. One, a leading indicator of where even yet unknown vulnerabilities might be being exploited, but also to some measure of assurance when uh, vulnerabilities aren't being exploited or attacks aren't being carried out, depending on how much confidence you have in your security monitoring infrastructure. Uh, at a very high level, you're, you're, the attacker is basically manip- manipulating ways, processor, uh, uh, speed of performance, optimized performance, uh, you know, rearranging that order to be able to, to, to see uh, things that you shouldn't be seeing. Uh, and it, it, it allows, uh, you know, you mentioned the browser uh, attack surface. It allows, you know, JavaScript in the browser to be able to pick, pick, pick at passwords or pick it out of sensitive, sensitive data. Tell me a little bit about what's going on around patching, because I'm seeing conflicting advice that maybe you should just roll back your patches. And and I think you mentioned it in your blog, um, the the Capsulate blog, which is, there was a tweet from someone, uh, roll back all the fixes and get smart and observe attacks and stop the attackers. Is that like real solid advice for a, a, a CISO trying to get a grip on this in his organization? Or should he be concerned about patching? And what does this say? I mean... Reliance on patching is not a discussion altogether, but... Right. So I think that we need to look, you know, everyone needs to make the decisions for themselves depending on their environment, their, right. their, environment, their threat models. Um, and what we want to make sure that was in that discussion was what detection capabilities are exist and what are realistic, um, because there are trade-offs with the mitigations for this. And a lot of the mitigations also are uh, imperfect. Their mitigation is not absolute um, fixes for some of these things. So, um, so when we also by adding detection into the mix, you have a um, a measure of protection until the mitigations are fully rolled out in your environment, but also some protection against the next issues in this class. Because, so for instance, what the detection that we developed for our second blog post. Um, was focused on detecting the use of a cache side channel. And this is actually a common technique to exploiting all three uh, of these variants among Spelldown, uh, Meltdown Inspector. Mm-hmm. And what that means is that any future variants, that, any future microarchitecture issues that also cause a, uh, an improper block to get loaded into the cache, um, Will also be detectable by the same um, by the same approach, and so that I think is also a u- interesting 
um, thing to put into the to risk equation. And most mature organizations that are susceptible to this do both. They have they implement robust detections in addition to the mitigations because data points of whether you are being attacked and when and who's doing it are also important data points to your overall defense posture. So your argument is that none of the existing mitigations are complete mitigations to the problem. This we know. And you're saying adding these these additional detections gives you at least a level of comfort that you're approaching it comprehensively. Exactly. And the amount of risk to deploying a protection like what we developed is actually a lot less. So for instance, our detections run completely in user land and are using existing functionality in the Linux kernel. So deploying it across your fleet is a minimal impact and just depending on how much CPU utilization we use. Um, whereas the challenge with a lot of the mitigations that are rolled out from the microcode to Intel processor microcode to the you know your kernel fixes to even application level fixes is you're changing a lot of fundamental characteristics of how you know computing has worked on your hardware for a while at the same time. So there is inevitably some risk in that. Cache timing attacks is that the only is that the only uh, uh, common element uh, to these three vulnerabilities, or this is just one approach you're taking? Um, that is the most common element to how all three are exploited. There are, um, they inevitably involve a, some sort of cache side channel mm-hmm. um, because, so all three variants through a variety of different vulnerabilities load a value into the cache that shouldn't have been, whether it's uh, a race condition with the, the page protection check, which is the heart of meltdown, or whether it's speculative execution, which is the heart of the two specter variants. Um, the result at the end of the day is a, ca- a, a block of memory is loaded into the cache that shouldn't have been. And then by design, uh, or just by an artifact of how modern caches are designed, um, a cache side channel attack can be used to leak out the contents of that cache block to the, to where the attacker can read it. And so it's a, 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 what we call a choke point, you know, where all those attacks get funneled through. It's, a metaphor that I might use is like uh, memory corruption vulnerabilities where, you know, before everyone was doing return oriented programming, a common thread was that you would inject a payload, you know, shell code or whatever you want to call it, and you would trick the program into running it. There's many vulnerabilities that involve redirecting execution and the vast majority of the ways that people exploited them were that they would uh, execute the injected payload. So, detecting the execution of foreign code was actually a useful heuristic to detect an attack um, without having to know every specific vulnerability. However, there's by nature some aperture of difference between the a subclass of vulnerabilities that you can ex- exploit without injecting uh, malicious code. So inevitably, there will be some things that our detectors um, don't detect. So for instance, there are some uh, cache side channels that people refer to as flush flush um, versus flush reload that are a little more problematic. Uh, but so we're working on heuristics that can detect that as well. That and it's, nice. yeah, so it, like anything, it's an arms race. But so far, we've had pretty good luck with our re- relatively straightforward detection heuristics and the public POCs that have been released. What about noise? How are you dealing with uh, uh, a detector being too noisy or, or are there like false positive risks? Absolutely. There's, there's some tuning involved. The 
So we, re we released two detectors. The first one is extremely low false positive, but also has a larger false negative rate than you'd like because it only covered one type of attack um, of meltdown. So the first detector was detecting whether you were um, reading invalid memory and catching a signal. And so the academic paper, that's how they implemented their first attack, but they had another variant that used exception suppression through two different ways that would not do that. But if someone was doing that, we had an extremely high fidelity signal that this attack was going on. And so what we're, what we as our, our approach is to look for the highest fidelity signals where possible of malicious activity um, and try and catch as much activity as possible with that high fidelity signal. And there's a, you know, I, I don't go too much into our product architecture, but we have various ways of correlating signal and doing other things to um, turn those into actionable alerts. So if someone um, takes the existing proof of concepts that's available on the internet and, and uh, plug it into your detector, they should see alarm bells or... or you should be detecting uh, your detector yes. should be detecting everything that's publicly available exactly with these so approaches, like, right? there is the results that we've seen is so um, the second detector release has three thresholds low medium and high we'll see an occasional line for like a low um, because we just tuned it that way um, but when you run one of the POCs from the internet you get 20 or 30 lines of high alerts so it's it's pretty a very a, a, a very clear difference and uh, I notice it's uh, the detector full source code is available online. How much? How much tweaking? Uh, you've released the source code. That's correct, right? That's correct. How much tweaking is required from uh, from the administrator? Is it uh, is it something that you can uh, run out of the box, or does it require a lot of? Um, we are building it so that it should require very little tweaking and tuning. However, um, honestly, it looks like there's a. There's some differences between CPU hardware models that I'm working on, that we're working on this afternoon. But, um, so anyone that wants to use it, we'd recommend, you know, running the public POCs, making sure they actually see a bunch of alerts and also, um, seeing what the false positives are, um, in their environment. And we're going to continue to make some improvements to it as well. Um, the, what we want, the information that we wanted to make sure to get out there early was that, that especially these cache miss, uh, the cache access performance management counters, um, which is that they are a high fidelity signal for detecting this type of activity. Um, and we'll do some more refinement on this, but we think it's going to be a promising avenue for ourselves and others. If I if I were to ask you to bet that this was whether this was exploited before or not, you would lean on the side of uh, this being the first we've... The, anyone in the world has ever heard about uh, these vulnerabilities or would you be uh, leaning on my side, which is the paranoia? Of there's no chance that, that people with so much more resources and, 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 and reason to find it hadn't found it before. Um, I'm going to go for the pun and say I'm not going to speculate. <laughs> Do you know it's been 10 years? Uh, it's been actually more than 10 years. In March, this, March 2018 will be 11 years since I first interviewed you after your successful MacBook Point to Own hack. And it came to my mind because when I interviewed you for ZDNet back then, 2000, March 2007, you said to me, I asked you, like, well, how do you go about figuring out what to look at next and how to find vulnerabilities and write exploits? And you gave me this quote of, uh, I focus on areas where there's blood in the water. And this popped into my mind here that this, this is just someone throwing a, a freshly killed shark in the water. 
Um, do you expect to see uh, a flurry of activity around uh, uh, processors? Absolutely. Where do we go um, from here? What do you? I mean, where, what areas well, would you say is ripe for research now? Um, well, I mean, I think there's probably a lot more areas related to speculative execution um, and microarchitecture implementation that will result in these. Um, I honestly don't know computer architecture at that level to really know where to look yet, but it's on my personal list to kind of dig in a little bit and um, try and get a better handle on what's going on here. Um, because it seems like in my initial investigation, I found that a lot of the ideas of kind of the out-of-order execution and speculative execution go back to academic papers dating from the early 90s. And so there was, we were clearly thinking about security very differently back then to how we are today. So all right now we're using a lot of hardware that was designed for a single-tenant world in a multi-tenant world, namely right. the cloud and other sort of environments. So um, I think we're going to have probably a decade of these issues, um, just know. like having a decade of remotely exploitable software vulnerabilities after we put things on the internet. Right, right. The reason why Flash still has to ship a patch every month for uh, yep. remotely exploitable stuff. When, when the, the thing that's really startling here, and, and correct me if I get it wrong, is that in, in, there really is no patch for Spectra, this, this second blog post that you guys issue around your detector. Uh, the microprocessors have to actually be redesigned uh, to prevent an attack, and uh, who knows when we'll see that. Uh, it, 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 it's nerve-wracking. Yeah, so it, it is a little nerve-wracking. So, yeah, I think the issue that you're referring to is the uh, branch injection, where you can train the branch predictor um, to take the wrong, to speculate down the wrong path in another process. Right. Um, and that's something that I don't believe is, is addressable by microarchitecture. Um, so that's something that is a, requires uh, fixing in the silicon or software-based mitigations like uh, repling, which is what um, a mitigation that Google developed and um, where you just emit code that isn't susceptible to it. However, any compiler-based change like that will take a long time to work its way through the ecosystem and it's also not without its own performance penalties. Yeah, and it, it was funny to me, US sort originally on the day that this, this stuff dropped, US sort issued an advisory with a recommendation to basically throw it away and buy a new one. Well, f first of all, the new one, there's no new one uh, that is that is not vulnerable and that kind of advice is somewhat ridiculous. However, they're right. It, there, there's no way to really prevent this attack? There's no real patch to prevent this attack. Do you expect we'll see recalls? Is that a, 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 from, from, a, from, a, from, an in, from a business perspective where we can get in, we can start speculating about it? I think, there's, I think there's a non-zero chance of recalls. Um, we'll probably see some of these issues as equivalent to the Intel uh, foof bug. Um, in, Remind me, in, what was the foof? Uh, this the foof bug was a a hardware error that would cause the process to lock up in um, I think the late nineties, and I don't believe they had a, a recall for it, but it was one of the most serious problems with Intel processors um, in their history. So I wouldn't be surprised if these if some of these uh, design issues were considered at the same magnitude at least. And uh, uh, even 
even when they're for, for 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 the meltdown case even when there are patches patches add to cost in this multi-tenant world right absolutely and also any current any kernel patches require a lot more coordination and logistics for organizations to uh, to apply and what I think would actually help because I think that these issues are going to become more frequent not less mm -hmm. over the next few years um, what I think would help a lot of organizations is to move to orchestrated containerized environments because in an environment like that where your workload is resilient to nodes coming and going this gives you the flexibility to auto scale up and down the same flexibility also allows you to apply rolling kernel updates across your fleet uh, consistently and yeah and continuously so patching your kernels is, is is essentially no more difficult than upgrading a dependency for an application library you just upgrade update the dependency make sure all the tests pass and you're good to go and uh, you know new sort of orchestrators such as Kubernetes are actually facilitating this type of model and some large environments have had this sort of um, approach in this, already. this sort of approach in place for a long time so it's very easy for them to update their kernels but for the vast majority of the planet updating the kernels on their Linux systems or updating the base AMI they're using in Amazon Web Services is a little more involved. It's just startling to me that there's no, there's no like foolproof fix and everyone has to go through their own environments and, and, and threat models and try to figure out what's the best approach here. And you'll still be sitting vulnerable to uh, existing known vulnerabilities or the blood in the water approach where in, in the coming months we'll see variants and we'll see uh, uh, new types of attacks that uh, will inevitably lead to big breaches. I, this is one of those that you just know. Uh, well, honestly, I think these, well, I'm not as convinced that these will lead to big breaches so much as any other of the high-profile remote vulnerabilities. So what I thought was most very serious about vulnerabilities like uh, Heartbleed and Shellshock was that they were remote vulnerabilities. And once you got onto a system, inevitably they had old kernels that were vulnerable to a, a variety of privilege escalation, known privilege escalation vulnerabilities. Um, and so an attacker could do a lot. And um, with these, outside of the cloud vendors, there's not a lot of avenues where you can exploit them, an attacker can exploit them readily. So I still think um, pervasive remote vulnerabilities like any of the the um, job are significantly more serious. Okay, so you're, you're not as pessimistic as I am. But about this one, no. no. Uh, how is life for you these days? You, I, I've known you as a, a, a security research guy. Uh, it's not your first, uh, your first startup rodeo. You've been involved with some other startups and some other companies, uh, you know, smaller scale in the services part. I believe this might be your first... Uh, product company yeah this is my first product startup uh, how 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 is how is life <laughs> life is life is life is busy you have vcs um, now you have like yep, uh, revenue we, we have, expectations you have we have investors investors would like to see you're like grown up now retreat return on their investments I, I would like to think that i was grown up a long time ago but um we're old, but man. I, I was just looking at. Old. I was just looking at the old stories that we, we that I uh, my old interviews with you from ten years ago, and I realized, Jesus Christ, it's been ten years. I know it's been it's been a long time. Um, but I think this it's definitely very interesting going into 
uh, product startup mode because I spent the last three years at Square working on products. Like I worked on product features um, to launch Square internationally and ship and pin markets. And so learned how to um, build, you know, product in a mature product organization with touching everything from hardware to firmware to mobile to backend systems. Right, but you're, sure not, things... but you're not responsible for revenue. You're not responsible for HR. I mean, and I know you guys, you have HR people in place and so on. Now, but what has been that transition like from, you know, technical coding? And I, I'm sure you're still doing uh, the majority of the technical coding on your product now. Well, what has that transition to being an entrepreneur uh, been like? So what I I consider it, I, the joke I make is that it's like a, being, it's like a, being a quantum bit. I'm doing everything all at once, all the time. So, um, what does that look like though? <laughs> it looks busy. Um, <laughs> uh, I guess, yeah, there's, as a founder, you know, it's like everything is in some way your problem. So, um, you just have to focus on, like what I call it is focus on the brightest fire. Like what is the, what is the brightest fire that I can work on to the most effect at this moment? And when that is uh, hands-on coding, I'll do that. When that is architecture, I'll do that. When it is um, sitting in thought, a, sitting thought in a board leading, meeting, right? Sitting in a board meeting. You know, when it's thought leading, when it's assisting the sales process, working with marketing, you know, it's I, I do what needs doing. Um, so it's it's nice having flexibility to work on a lot of things, but it is difficult prioritizing when everything feels critical all the time. And, and I'm sure that's uh, that's the life of, uh, of an executive at a small company trying to, you know, find your range and, and find your niche. And you have a sales team running after you have a marketing team chasing leads and a sales team trying to find uh, uh, prospective clients. It just becomes incredibly chaotic. Yeah, but I don't see it as any, like, I personally don't see it as any different than a lot of other roles I've had where you're always working with, you know, to have the most impact based on where you sit and what you're better at than what anyone else is around you. So I've always looked, I've always, I think, been very entrepreneurial. So um, that's the way I look at it. Whether I'm building a team inside a larger organization, whether I'm building a product, whether I'm building a company, it's always um, trying to do a lot of things at once. And I've never really been comfortable with, I don't know, that's someone else's job. Right. Do you still find time to do vulnerability research? Are you still uh, poking around it? Or is it all just uh, specific and relevant to what Capsulate is doing? I haven't had time in way too long. <laughs> I think that's... Welcome to um, adulthood. Welcome to adulthood. Yeah, it's... Uh, I, I think a lot of people are familiar with, you know, my... Basically my hobby work. Um, because everything I presented at conferences is all evening and weekend hobby work. Um, so as you get older, it becomes, diff- and, and also, I mean, a lot of that work has become more difficult. It, it, I can no longer win pwn to own in one night. Now it takes entire teams months to do. Um, right, because I, I mean, we, we, we should talk about this a little bit. Uh, pwn to own now is back then it was a single, was it a quick time bug? Yeah. So that was a quick time for Java, a vulnerability in quick time for Java, which was in, Installed by iTunes, so any system running iTunes, whether it was a Windows, Mac, uh, or Windows or Mac, was was vulnerable. Right. So it was a single bug. You didn't have a sandbox to deal with. It was a it was a totally different world. Now you have multiple. You have teams of people working for months, chaining three, four, five bugs together to just to 
uh, get execution and then you have to chain a few bugs to get out of the sandbox. It's a different world entirely. Uh, exactly. Platforms you need to build first, mm-hmm. first you need to build a set of primitives to get code execution within one context and then you chain multiple vulnerabilities to gain execution at, across other security barriers and yeah, it's a a lot more involved. So platforms have gotten a lot more resilient from where we were 10 years ago. However, at the same time, there's no shortage of breach news. There's no shortage of, of compromises. There's no shortage of uh, three-letter agencies compromising important targets. How, how, do, how, do we, how, how do you balance that in your mind? Platforms have gotten a lot harder to exploit, but uh, we're still dealing with phishing emails, people clicking on an, an attachment and getting owned. Like So... Uh, uh, perhaps cynically, I just think that there's a disconnect between what looks cool on the internet and what actually causes uh, breaches. What is that? Mean? So, so um, a lot of the attacks that happen that cause these ramp these breaches aren't at, don't require uh, Project Zero level Type level. Yeah, I agree. It's... Right, level skills. Um, so, the, where we are today is that uh, credential theft and relatively simple vulnerabilities. Um, are still causing significant damage. So I think that's where um, a lot of practitioners focus. And there, I do hear people complain that there's a somewhat of a disconnect between what security practitioners are focused on defending against versus what um, a lot of the security industry is you know, focused on defending and, against. And actually dealing with. And in many cases, it's, it's because we haven't fixed because patching is not as straightforward as it should be. A lot of it is old, uh, musty old vulnerabilities, uh, configuration errors in your uh, infrastructure, you know, whether it's in the cloud, whether it's your uh, uh, setting up your network and leaving something exposed or something badly configured, or it's, it's, it's spare phishing and, uh, you know, just run-of-the-mill things. When I say run-of-the-mill, run-of-the-mill for like the high-end Project Zero researchers did turn a blind eye to that stuff. But that's the stuff that's causing all these major breaches. What is the reason? Is it because we haven't gotten patching right or we haven't really locked down how things should be configured and and, and properly set up? Um, I think there's probably a lot of reasons, but the, the, the one that sticks out in my mind is sort of a manifestation of what's called, um, I, I think of the security manifestation of Conway's law. Um, so Conway's law is just the principle that the structure of your software will uh, re- will represent the structure of your communication inside an organization. And I think the same holds for security. So when you close the loop of communication, like tighten the loop, you will get better security because um, you will focus more on the problems that you're having versus problems in the abstract that you might not be having. And I see a lot of researchers who have never had operational security responsibilities. I see a lot of operational security people who have never uh, tried to disclo- right. dabbled in disclosing a, a impactful vulnerability to an organization and being completely ignored. Um, and so it could be a staffing issue. Seeing, I think seeing like it's, I think it's an issue of perspectives more than staffing and, um, and building kind of a better perspective on, what's actually happening in the, like what are actually causing attacks would help us. And one, actually the thing I'm fascinated with right now um, is uh, so Ryan McGeehan has a lot, has a page where he tra- he calls it the blockchain graveyard. Mm-hmm. And um, Magoo, it's on GitHub. 
Exactly. Yeah. And the cool thing about, uh, well, not cool thing, but one one aspect of uh, blockchain companies and their compromise and cryptocurrency companies is they can't deny it because the or they can't cover it up because the coins are gone. And so, an uh, interesting culture of transparent of breach transparency has taken hold there. So we have actually pretty good visibility to what happened. And right. it's actually a lot better than in other financial sectors and even the technology industry as a whole, or just industries as a whole. And so that gives you a lot better uh, visibility to what is really causing breaches. And it's a pretty good proxy for what would cause breaches anywhere where there's information of value. Interesting. Very interesting. I was hoping we could get through this podcast without mentioning blockchain or coin, but nope. we failed. You only, get thir- you only get 30 minutes in a technical conversation before you get there. While we are worrying about Spectre and Meltdown, the same the same holds true that uh, uh, companies will be popped with other uh, uh, lower hanging fruit anyway. So this this level of paranoia is not necessarily uh, uh, justified. So, yeah, um, I think there's a lot of more important, more serious things to be, to worry about, like credential theft um, and even. Uh, relatively unsophisticated system vulnerabilities. So for instance, like right now, the industry as a whole will focus a lot on application level vulnerabilities in proprietary code. However, um, the majority of the actual software in a kind of deployed environment is actually open source now. So um, the, the amount of attack surface reduction that you get from fixing your own application, proprietary application vulnerabilities is actually fairly minimal and also attackers don't have access to that source code, they, but they do have access to all the open, open source code that might be in your stack. So if you think about it from an attacker's perspective, they get a lot more bang for their buck looking for vulnerabilities in open source code that are somewhat prevalent or somewhat prevalent mm-hmm. um, than trying to enumerate a vulnerability that affects just one target. Are you done with your detectors? What what what? What can we expect more auto-capsulate uh, moving forward around these issues? Uh, so we'll be having uh, at least one more blog post in this series um, to to recap um, with some improvements to the detectors. Um, we're out of ideas at this phase, so uh, <laughs> probably probably won't have another detector coming in short order, but we'll be working on integrating these capabilities into our product as well. Where can, where can the listeners find... Uh, the detector. Uh, the best place to look um, is on our, co- our company blog at capsulate.com. And at capsule eight is capsule eight digit eight.com. Correct. And with an E. With an E. Uh, with an E. Oh, it's common. C A P S U L E with the eight.com. Yes. Fantastic yes. And naming, by the way. <laughs> thank, thank you. Uh, Brandon, Dr. Ray, inimitable Dr. Ray came up with that one. Um, and also our open source repo on GitHub at Capsulate slash Capsulate um, will have, has all the code for our open source project, which is where we'll put all of our open source detectors as well. And I'm working on writing up uh, some of this for our wiki in that repo to kind of always be a, a single place to look for the latest and greatest. on these. Latest and greatest on these. Thank you very much, Dino. Appreciate it. Best of luck with everything, man. I'm rooting for you guys. Of course. Great time. Great talking to you again. Thank you.